You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Jean Herr. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023. Later in the program, we have Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, Artificial Crooks on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. More following today's feature, but first, your local headlines. On March 13th at the Ellettsville Town Council meeting, the council heard an amendment to the 2023 salary ordinance to add a part-time park employee. This ordinance would also change the traffic, safety, education, and enforcement overtime rate. Council member Sandra Hash said that some changes were made to the ordinance after the first reading. The OPO and OWI was not on the original ordinance that I presented at the last meeting. And after that time, Jimmy had informed me that the rate had changed. Uh, If you'd like to speak on that, that's fine. Council member Jimmy Durno explained the changes. Hash confirmed specifics on the salary rate. They increased that rate to entice the officers to come and work. So it's a it's a win-win. If we get them we get them to go out, we get the we get the DUIs, and if we and if we get enough hours, we get the equipment. So. In the current salary, it's at, it's at time and a half, and the new uh, guideline is double time. Double time, yes. Vice President William Ellis asked for clarification on the salary range to ensure the salary was competitive. And I see the Parks and Rec Fund part-time employee says from $22.50 to $25. Are we setting it at $25 an hour, or are we saying that would be the range? I think it has been set at $25. $25, yes. Okay. So what is the $22.50? I just um, feel like it's always good to put a range Okay. In. I just want to make sure. I that, do that on all positions. Oh, I thought we'd already fully discussed $25. That's why I was wondering. If okay. you want to mark the range out, it's okay with me. I'll take it out. Okay. Yeah, I, I think a range is good, but I just want to make sure that we're competitive for the position. The council approved the ordinance unanimously. Next, the council discussed an agreement between the town of Ellettsville and Baker Tilly USLP. Town manager Mike Farmer informed the council that due to inflation, the cost of installing and maintaining their water system has increased drastically. So uh, it's been since 2016, we've had a rate increase. Uh, and we did pretty well for two or three years, um, making the old rate work as it should, but it only has a life because of um, inflation and other factors. And um, so um, we have now super inflation, especially in our industry. Um, uh, I, I, I was signing claims before I came in here and, um, and, and 
plastic 12 inch pipe is 46 cents a foot every foot $46 every foot's $46 we had a repair to make um west of town we bought two sticks of 12 inch pipe and it cost uh $1,800 so uh, all the parts uh, full seal clamps now cost four or five hundred dollars a piece when we make a repair um it, it, it's our our system needs some severe, not severe, but some um, updates to the system. We have a 10-year plan for what we want to do. Farmer explained Baker Tilly's involvement in the water rate study and the rate case filing. So anyway, we um, ask um, Baker Tilly to do a rate study. And they're prepared now to move forward to the next step where they present to the IURC. So uh, they um, have given us scope of work and um, service fees. And I mean, A, it's time and expense not to exceed $45,000. In 2016, we paid $41,000 for the same thing. It's what it costs. So that was not a quite an increase. Now, if we get into the um, ditches and have to wrestle around with the IURC, we could spend another $40,000 um, on top of that for discovery and um, um, extra work. I shouldn't turn pages. And, uh, but I do not expect to get into B. So it's additional services, discovery, responses, data requests, et cetera. They have to put it in there because if the IURC gives, a, gives us a hard time, then they have to be prepared to move forward. And so anyway, I need uh, the board's approval to um, put them on the payroll and have them move forward. We, we really, um, I guess we probably should have started this a year, a year and a half ago. And uh, so we, we need to move forward with the rate study. The rate study, the other page you got, uh, right now with what we've given them, um, it looks like that the average monthly bill, which is currently $24.44 for 4,000 gallons, this is just for some perspective. Um, there's three different alternatives, but I'll just go to the worst case scenario, um, could increase by $6.38. That may not be enough before by the time we get done with this, but it puts you in the ballpark of what you should expect of an increase. Um, I put the percentage up there as well. It's 26.09% if you go alternate three, but um, it's absolutely necessary. And um, I, I can give you as much information as you need to see that we indeed need this uh, rate increase. The council approved the engagement letter with Baker Tilly USLP unanimously. The next Ellettsville Town Council meeting will be held on Monday, March 27th. This is Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. Last month, we looked into problems caused by the housing crisis. This month, we will share possible solutions. One solution to the housing crisis in Bloomington is to diversify the housing supply. According to Home for All, multifamily housing is characterized by multiple units in a single building or by shared walls. 
Home for All states that multifamily housing is necessary to provide affordable units, especially in high-cost housing markets. According to the National Multifamily Housing Council, multifamily housing increases the density, variety, and efficiency of a city's housing network. Director of Planning and Transportation Scott Robeson explained what multifamily housing is and explained the differences between a duplex and an accessory dwelling unit. Uh, from a planning perspective, it's uh, you have a single lot of, of property that uh, you could put two dwelling units on that. Um, and those two dwelling units could be both owner-occupied. Uh, one of them can be owner-occupied or one could be rental or both could be rental. Um, and then the same would hold true for like a triplex or fourplex. So again, it's the number of uh, separate dwelling units that a person or individual or family could live within on one parcel of land. So an accessory dwelling unit uh, is a little bit different to a duplex. Um, so if you can picture a single family home on a, a single lot, um, Bloomington permits or allows um, uh, an accessory dwelling unit. And it's a little bit different than a duplex. Um, the key difference that we can do with an ADU, as they're also known as, is we can regulate um, that one of the units on the property, either the, the main home or the accessory dwelling unit, has to uh, be lived in by the owner or owner-occupied, and the other could be rented. Um, there's a little bit of differences on the size. So there's a, a maximum size that the accessory dwelling unit can um, be allowed um, or permitted within the city. Um, so they're generally smaller. Um, so, you know, uh, quickly, you know, like a good comparison, um, often they're referred to as a mother-in-law, an apartment, or a granny flat. Um, you know, the intent behind uh, ADU is uh, allow for an extra unit to be uh, built. It can either be attached to the house um, or be a, a detached, uh, built above a detached garage or something like that. Um, and there's a limitation of uh, up to just two bedrooms. Um, in the ADU. Uh, so they're, they're, they're generally smaller and they're not the same as a duplex. Yeah, typical, you know, kind of common uh, way that people have converted their garages um, across the country for ADUs. Um, nationally speaking, um, there's been a strong trend towards allowing ADUs uh, to be uh, allowed in communities. Um, and you see that in many different ways and forms throughout the country. But that's a very common thing that you would see as a, a garage being converted into a dwelling unit. Robeson shared what the city hopes to achieve by including more housing type options in the urban development ordinance. The, the goal of the, the plexes, multiplexes and accessory dwelling units was to, to diversify our housing market, um, to give residents more options for housing types out there. Um, our market's very bipolar in the sense of uh, single-family or larger multifamily complexes. So that's the primary goal. In doing that, um, it does create some different price points and um, makes housing more attainable or um, some affordable options. Not affordable housing in the regulatory sense, but um, does create more choices and opportunities with these different housing types.
Robeson explained that single-family housing was zoned to be separate from multifamily housing after World War II when there was a large boom of housing construction in suburban areas. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the missing middle architecture kind of goes back to, uh, you know, how many communities were built pre-World War II um, where neighborhoods had a variety of housing types, um, smaller uh, courtyard courts, uh, multifamily units, single-family units, duplexes and triplexes kind of all intermixed in those older neighborhoods. And Bloomington has examples of that here in our community. And what happened over time across the country is um, through zoning rules and regulations, those those mixed types of housing uh, units were put in their own zoning districts and not allowed to be kind of commingled together. Um, and so that's kind of what has happened over time. Um, and, you know, recognizing that there is a lot of benefit to having that diversity within neighborhoods from a diversity standpoint, from both uh, demographic and ep- economics from housing, and just for character of a neighborhood where you don't uh, have essentially the same type of, of uh, building architecture or style throughout the whole neighborhood, there's a a good variety of that. Um, So that's kind of what the missing middle is getting at, is having communities trying to um, allow or permit some more of these uh, different housing types than than kind of the two extremes of the single family and the multifamily. Robeson said that the Planning and Transportation Department has not received many requests to build duplexes since the UDO got approved back in 2021. He said they don't have any plans to incentivize them, but they do have plans to make accessory dwelling units easier to develop. Currently, there's not. I mean, the way the, you know, the UDO was adopted and we've been through several updates and as part of the the concerns over duplexes was the six-month reporting and the conditional use. Um, you know, I think initially, you know, staff, uh, anticipated there wouldn't be a big demand. Um, and I think from those meetings, uh, elected officials, there were some different opinions on what their opinions, but the, the fears were that um, they would overcome, you know, the, the existing housing stock and take over, and that hasn't been the, the case, mm-hmm. so we're continuing to monitor um, the trend line, and there's, there's rules up for that. Um, you know, I think looking back, uh, we have very few that are coming through the process and, you know, people could point to the pandemic, supply chain, uh, you know, uh, interest rates and other things all play into the complexities of, of all the housing types. Um, but I, again, I think we at the city and the planning transportation department never really anticipated that we would have a, the floodgates open for, for duplexes. Uh, as far as incentives and, and whatnot, uh, to encourage more of them, um, there aren't any current plans to, to incentivize the, uh, for more duplexes. Um, there was a push to help make accessory dwelling units uh, kind of lower the barriers on that. Um, so we're continuing to um, help educate uh, the community on those. Um, they're, they're much easier than they were uh, in the earlier days when they were 
kind of followed a similar model with the duplexes on conditional uses and distance or spacing requirements and what have you. Um, the city will soon be launching a, a website that there'll be some pre-approved design concepts from local architects. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that effort to help showcase um, accessory dwelling units as a way to help promote that housing type in the community. Although the city can't require any affordable housing standards, they can incentivize builders to include a certain number of affordable units by altering the setback standards and or allowing them to increase their structure's height. Yo does have incentives, and so one of the things that I think to think about is, um, you know, the state prohibits uh, what's what's required is, uh, um, you know, if somebody were to come in that they were required to have uh, affordable housing, the state prohibits us from doing that, so we have to have, offer voluntary incentives. And so some of these larger uh, apartment buildings being proposed and developed um, those developers are voluntarily either contributing to the housing development fund for affordable housing or providing affordable units. Um, so there, there are uh, voluntary incentives um, that are baked into the UDO to help address some of the affordability issues when it comes to affordable housing, um, in addition to the fact that we've uh, created or permitted more housing types. Urban planner and housing and community development consultant Deborah Meyerson specializes in affordable and mixed-income housing. Steve Henfeld of the Limestone Post spoke with Meyerson about possible solutions to the housing crisis in Monroe County. Meyerson explained what missing middle housing is and how having more options creates a wider variety of rental prices in the area. One thing I'll just clarify because as the expression missing middle housing becomes more common and tossed around it, sometimes starts to get confused with if people are talking about income or architecture. And missing middle housing is about architecture. Um, certainly one promise of missing middle housing is to diversify not, not only housing types, but diversify price points for housing. Because single family detached housing is the most expensive housing type that exists. And if you have other housing types, whether it's duplexes, triplexes, cottage courts, um, just diversity of housing types that are not just the most expensive type of housing. You naturally have other price points built in. Myerson added that multifamily housing blends in with the surrounding architecture. You can look around the older neighborhoods and see where there's, you know, smaller scale multifamily homes that are tucked into neighborhoods. Um, you can, you know, duplexes often are you know, can take you by surprise because they just look like another house, and then you notice there's two doors, right, or two mailboxes. You're like, oh, hey, that's a duplex. I didn't realize that. Myerson explained that although multifamily homes may be in demand, if they are not convenient to make, then they won't get built. Having that mix of housing types was made illegal decades ago, and so now, just just more recently, with the revision of the UDO. A little more incrementally, you know, baby steps, looking at allowing it, but, um, you know, it's kind of keeping the eyes on making that easy and possible. Um, and sometimes um, talk to folks about 
in terms of what's getting built in the community, what is allowable, convenient, and marketable. So let's just say, you know, there's a market for other housing types, but maybe, you know, again, the UDO doesn't allow it, so you don't build it. Or maybe it does allow it, but maybe it's harder to get financing for it. So maybe that's not as convenient because if you can't borrow the money and you don't have the equity on your own, not going to get built. Um, or convenient, maybe maybe the UDO allows it, but you have to go through a conditional use process that takes a lot of time, you get neighborhood resistance. And so technically it's allowed, but it's not very convenient and it you know may push the price up of actually doing it and you just say, okay, I know there's a market for it. I know technically it's allowed in the code, but it's just not worth my time. So I'm just giving examples of how those three intersecting need to be there in order to really get the desired outcomes optimal in terms of what's getting built. So that's usually that intersection. So if even if there's an interest in things that are missing middle housing, if it's still the most... Let's say there's certainly market. People still want single-family homes. Nobody's outlawing that. Nobody's saying nobody can have that. It's just offering other choices. But if the easiest, allowable, and convenient intersects with that single-family home, well, that's more likely what's going to get built. Marson gave an example of how turning a single-family home into a duplex can help the current residents stay in their neighborhood when they might otherwise have had to downsize to a new location. She also said it can provide more opportunities for future residents to live in high-resource neighborhoods. I mean, people who are getting older want to stay in their neighborhoods. You know, people who have are empty nesters, you know, may have twice as many bedrooms as they need. If you could easily divide your single-family home into a duplex so that you could have a renter on the other side, um, it would help pay for bills, you know, passive income that would help people stay in the neighborhoods where they want to live. Um, it would create more living space for someone else who wants to live in the neighborhood. And it just, I mean, it seems like a win-win. Again, it's a matter of what does that conversion look like? Um, how easy is it to do? That's even different than like, of course, building something from scratch or converting something to put it on the market. It's more, but it's just another opportunity that I think has some real value, but maybe needs some more exploration to figure out how to make it the convenient part, right? We know there's probably a market for it. We know it probably is allowable. Again, there may be some hurdles to go through in terms of, like you said, like rental codes and stuff like that. But the bottom line is it is it convenient, you know, especially whether it's ADU or if it was a conversion of a single family home into a duplex, you know, who's going to do it? Who do I hire? Um, how do I oversee that? If it's somebody who is a small scale developer and building it to then put it on the market, you know, they have a little more kind of expertise in that and they're initiating it. So there's a lot of different kind of opportunities to figure out how to plug in to certain gaps in um, skill sets or knowledge um, and just to create higher functioning neighborhoods that, um, you know, because the older neighborhoods I'm talking about where these might be more applicable, they're likely to be on bus lines, they're likely to be walkable, likely to be closer to schools and jobs. Uh, and that, that's where we, those are high resource neighborhoods. Meyerson emphasized the importance of having more housing options in a place 
where there is not much more land to be developed and in a time where construction costs are so high. But the bottom line is in the city, there's dwindling developable land. So you could do this lot by lot, you know, one home at a time. And I certainly think that in certain neighborhoods, it should be a priority to diversify the housing as opposed to build some enormous mansion. Um, you know, it's not exclusively about missing metal, but it's about, you know, I think there's the question, I don't have it in front of me, but you know, what kind of housing do we need and want and what can we agree on? And that's a major point of contention right now. Um, not everybody seems to agree with the future of where people should be living in the future. And I, you know, again, I understand everybody wants their own driveway and their own single family lot and stuff. The fact is, is that the cost of land, labor, materials, people may need to adjust their expectations somewhat. Um, I'm not saying like everybody's living in an apartment and some high rise at all. But Missing Middle offers other choices that people may not even be as familiar with because it's not as available these days. And so letting the market help direct that in addition to, you know, local regulations and um, just a convenience factor, which covers a few different modes. Robeson shared that there are plans to include a more diverse housing stock in the Hopewell neighborhood, which we will look into next week. I wouldn't expect to see a lot of these moving forward in the future, um, but there are some opportunities the city's working on to help create some, some more new opportunities for these housing types. In the Hopewell neighborhood where the former Bloomington Hospital site is, there's some locations out there for some of the smaller uh, housing types, the single-family duplex, triplex. Um, so we're hopeful to see some of that uh, coming to fruition soon. Tune in next week at 5 p.m. as we dive deeper into possible solutions for Monroe County's housing crisis. For WFHB, I'm Benedict Jones. And I'm Jean Herr. Next, Artificial Crooks on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Guess what? There's a new scammer in town, and it's not even human. We have now found the very first case of a serious, big-time, all-too-successful swindle involving artificial intelligence. The BBC broke the story recently. This was a worldwide con game, and nobody knows how many people got ripped off. One report said there were 800,000 in Indonesia alone. 
There's no telling how much loot the scam lifted, millions in U.S. dollars, maybe a lot more. But the scam wasn't about U.S. dollars. It was all about cryptocurrency, digital money like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and about 23,000 other kinds. These are all traded in markets, and they go up and down like stocks, except much farther and much faster. Enter the villain a company called iEarnBot. That's a small i, a capital E, A-R-N, and the separate word bot. iEarnBot. The villain was suave and impeccably dressed, claimed it was a U.S. company partnered with MIT, Qualcomm, and Huawei, but nobody in those organizations ever heard of them. The website didn't give any contact information. What it did was promise wonderful things. Oh, iEarnBot said they had created an AI, an artificial intelligence program, that could keep track of all the factors in the enormous, fast-moving, constantly changing world of cryptocurrencies and would be able to invest successfully every time. So if you invest your money, you are guaranteed to get high returns with no risk. Wow! Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Doesn't it? not to the victims. The whole thing was very sophisticated. There were displays available to investors with figures and graphics that showed how much the investments were growing. But suddenly the website announced it was going down for maintenance and everything was frozen temporarily. Investors couldn't withdraw. Apparently the maintenance included a very thorough vacuuming because when the site came back up, investors found their account balance was zero. Have you been following recent reports about the development of artificial intelligence? The ChatGPT program that got a lot of publicity has now been replaced with a new version, and the whole field is growing exponentially because AIs are now helping to design better AIs. The iEarnBot scam may or may not have been actually run by an AI, but there's no reason it couldn't have been. An artificial intelligence is just that, artificial and it has no more sense of morality, no more concept of right and wrong than its creators build into it. Exactly how to do that is a wide-open question these days. Even if fraudsters are human beings, AI is going to be a very powerful tool for people who want to break security programs, hack into computers, and bamboozle you. We'd all better beware. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break.